You know, I find it very interesting that a majority of commands in the Bible to defend the faith and watch out for false teaching is not given to pastors, but to you. It's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, they're given to pastors too, as those who feed the flock and shepherd the sheep, those who lead the charge, they're given to us too. But almost every single command in the New Testament about false teaching and contending for the truth is given to you and not to me. And the reason for that probably is because you're the ones in the trenches. You're the ones on the front lines. You're the ones in the world assaulted by lies all day long. You're the ones afflicted at every angle from heresy and lies and false teaching and worldly philosophy every single day, which means contending for the faith and defending the truth is just as much your responsibility as it is my own. Because you understand there is an all-out assault on the truth at this very moment. And there has been ever since the devil suited up as a serpent and slithered into the garden and uttered his terrifying words, Did God really say that? Did he really say that? And I know, I know that mom and dad told you when you were a kid that there's no such thing as monsters. I'm here to tell you that there are. And they don't hide under your bed and they don't suck your blood, but they come in the form of false teaching and teachers. And although they quote the Bible sometimes, and although they speak in the name of Christ sometimes, the power that lurks behind them is nothing short of evil and demonic. Which is exactly why we need to be on our game as believers. Battle ready, eyes open, Senses sharp, guns drawn, safety off. Today is the evil day, Paul says. It is the last hour, John says. False prophets and teachers and wolves in sheep's clothing have already come. They're already here, they've already arrived. They have pulpits and churches and books. And blogs and vlogs, they're on YouTube and Spotify, they are everywhere. They're coming after you. They want your attention. They want you to listen to them. And they are counting on you not being able to discern the difference between truth and what only seems like the truth. Which is precisely what drives John to say what he does in our text this morning. Because you remember the situation at this church, very clever and persuasive teachers had infiltrated these churches, started attending these churches. And over time, these teachers, they won the people's trust. They gained credibility. And how this situation usually goes, they wowed people with their knowledge. I mean, you think about it, how this works. I mean, they did what people do today. They went to church picnics and barbecues. They brought weird bean casserole to fellowship meals. They attended small groups. 
They, they did activities. They, they, and probably over time, they maybe even had a platform to teach the people publicly. They wormed their way into the affections of these little churches. And when John found out about these predators and what they were doing, he was not a happy apostle. And yet, since the pen is mightier than the sword, in response to that situation, John writes a letter. This one. In which he trains his people and us to discern the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. From the spirit of God, from the spirit of the Antichrist, because believe it or not, on the surface, if you're not extremely careful, those two things can look and almost smell exactly the same. As you can tell, I'm calling my sermon Osteen, Oprah, and Open Minds. Because none of those are a good thing. Osteen is a false teacher down in Houston. Oprah leads the biggest cult in America. And although having an open mind sounds like a noble thing to have, from the Bible's perspective, the exact opposite is the case. So to prepare you for what you're about to hear this morning, let me just ask you, do you know what you believe about everything? What I mean is, do you value theological depth and precision? Do you see it as part of your identity as a Christ follower to always be expanding in your knowledge of doctrine and theology? Ask it this way, do you feel the weight of the fact that the power of a local church to impact the world begins with the people in that church knowing and loving and living and defending sound doctrine against the powers of darkness? Because that's exactly what John is after. The stakes are high this morning because the stakes are always high every morning, every day, and so let's go to the text if you have notes, here's where we're going this morning. I want you to see from our text two tests. Two tests needed to discern the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Two tests needed to discern the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. And test number one is this. First, the criterion of Christology. The criterion of Christology. Nobody likes tests. Nobody likes taking tests. Those people are weirdos. But the kind of test that John is talking about is not one that you have to take, but one that you give to others. It's a test that you apply to things that you read and hear, and get this, even things that pop into your own minds. Like a test that an archaeologist does to see if an artifact is faked or forged. A test that people do to see if money is authentic or counterfeit. So you don't take the test, you give the test to determine if what you heard from where what you heard or read actually comes from. Because according to John, there are but two unseen forces from which a given truth claim may come. Look at verse 2. There is the Spirit of God, or verse 3, there is the Spirit of the Antichrist. Or look down at verse 6, puts it another way. There is the Spirit of truth, but there's the Spirit of error. That's it. Everything that claims to be from God, everything that claims to be, have a divine authority, everything that claims to be inspired by God comes from one of those two sources, and it is up to you this morning to determine if what you heard or read is from heaven 
or if it's from hell. Which is why John says what he says in verses 1 through 3. Look what he says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but instead test the spirits to see if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses Jesus Christ having come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard is coming. And too late, too late, it's already in the world. Just just hearing that, you can just feel it, right? the urgent concern from the pastor's heart that not everything is just safe and hunky-dory, that danger lurks in the world and there is every single reason not to be fearful but to be cautious and careful. That you shouldn't believe just everything you hear. That as believers, you have the responsibility upon your shoulders to distinguish between truth and error. And I want to take what John says in verses 1 through 3, and I want to take it in three steps, each of them beginning with the letter C. There's the command. Second, there's the cause. And then third, there's the criteria. The command, the cause, the criteria. Let's look at the command, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, to see if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And there's the command. It comes in two parts. To not believe every spirit, but instead to test the spirits to see if they are from God. Because you know, not everything that glitters is gold. Not everything that claims to be from God actually is from God. You see, that's what John means by spirit. Do not believe every spirit, but instead test the spirits. What does that mean? I think by spirit, John means any teaching or any teacher that claims to be from God. Which claims divine inspiration, which claims supernatural origin. For instance, Muhammad claimed that the Quran came from Allah, from Gabriel. That's a spirit. Joseph Smith claimed that the Book of Mormon is from God. That's a spirit. The books, Heaven is for Real and Jesus Calling, both claim their content comes from God. I am standing here claiming divine perspective from the authority of God's Word. That's, I, I, this is a spirit. That's exactly what John is referring to. And, and his apostolic warning is, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. In other words, do not uncritically accept Every person who claims divine revelation for the things they say. Which means the whole, God showed me, God spoke to me, God told me, God revealed to me, I was led, it was shown me, it came to me, or whatever other versions of that there are, those are not passwords that mean you have to automatically accept what you just heard with an open mind. Because in fact, having an open mind is not even a biblical virtue at all. It sounds like it is, but it's not. In fact, get this. There is one of the words for fool in Hebrew is related to the the word open mind. It refers to a person who just uncritically accepts anything they hear. Sounds good. Sounds good enough to me. Sounds great. 
instead of using intelligent discernment. So you can totally tell what John means here. He is calling for careful, wise, biblical discrimination of what you hear that claims to be from God, that claims to represent a divine perspective. Just because it's, they say it's from God doesn't mean it actually is from God. And you need to be able to discern the difference between the two. In fact, the health and impact of this church depends on your ability to do so. So how? What do you do? How do you do this? How, how, how do you do what John is talking about? And he says exactly how to do it. Look what he says. What you need to do is test the spirits to see if they're actually from God. Verse 1 again. Beloved, do not uncritically accept every spirit that claims to be from God, but instead of that, test the spirits to see if they are from God. And there it is. Test the spirits. Test them. Examine them. Interrogate them. Take a blowtorch to them and see what they're made of. Bash them against the wall, run over them with your car, crack them open, see what's inside. In other words, what I mean is John is saying, take what's being said and subject it to thorough, intense, rigorous evaluation in light of what the Bible says to see if it actually represents a biblical perspective. And the reason why I put it in those terms is because the word there that John uses, test the spirits, that's a word that means the smelting of metal in a scorching furnace. That's what that word means. Heated, intense, rigorous investigation to see if it matches with what God has revealed in the sacred text of Holy Scripture. And you understand the urgency behind this, right? You, you, get, the inten- you get why he's being so intense about this. The reason he's being so intense is because sometimes it's really, really hard to tell the difference between the truth and what only pretends to be from the truth. Because you understand that the deceptions from the devil, they don't come in books with pentagrams on the front, or 666 on the cover. False teachers do not have horns and and pitchforks and look like monsters. No, they look good and sound good. They are clever and slick and persuasive, and every lie they tell has 80% truth which is what makes them so hard to spot and so easy to believe. Now, the reason why this is so urgent is because the highway to hell is littered with billboards that say Jesus on the front. Because the Prince of Darkness knows. He knows that the way to deceive people and, and, and destroy their faith is to sound as biblical as possible to disguise his lies and cloak his deceptions with biblical-sounding words and a bait-and-switch so that people start believing lies and they don't even realize that they are until it's too late and they walk away from the faith just like the two ladies that I know got swept up in the Hebrew roots cult, walked away from Christ. Just like the guy I know got entangled in the heresy of open theism which denies that God knows the future. Just like people today getting duped by the cult of critical race theory, bowing the knee to Lord Woke, replacing the gospel with social justice, just like them. And you know those people. People getting swept up in all kinds of things. That's why you have to test the spirits to see if they're actually from God. 
And how we do that, John's going to tell us in verses 2 and 3, but I want you to notice the cause. The cause, why you have to test the spirits. Because why should we, John? Why, why should we be armed and ready to test the spirits and defend the faith? Because to be totally honest, John, you sound a little paranoid. Big bad dragon out there in the world. Is that it, John? Some, some cosmic conspiracy powers of Satan disguised as teachers and preachers. Is that what it is, John? Yeah, actually, that's exactly what's going on. Look what he says. Beloved, I'm telling you, do not believe every spirit, but instead test the spirits to see if they are from God. Okay, why? Why, John? Because, notice, notice, look at your Bibles, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is me talking to you. Beware, little church. Beware. Many false prophets have gone out. Not a few. Not occasionally. Many have gone out. Deceivers. Liars. Teachers of the doctrines of demons have gone out into the world. And notice, they're not coming and they're not on their way. They're already here. They've already arrived. They're present. They're here. They have come. And notice John says they're in the world, meaning they are not limited to a particular geographical region. They are everywhere in the world. And thanks to social media, they are in your home. And understand carefully, a false prophet is not merely someone who makes wacko predictions and bogus predictions about the future like Nostradamus. No, a prophet is anyone who claims divine authority and inspiration for the things they proclaim. And you see, because they exist and because there are so many and because they're here and because they're so slimy and so hard to spot, for that reason, John says, you must be ready and armed to test the spirits. I mean, this is not a game. This is really serious. This is life or death. The the Christ-exalting success of this church or the Christ-defaming failure of this church depends in many ways on your ability to defend the faith and test the spirits to see if they are from God or not. Which again means what? What does it mean to test the spirits? Okay, let's back up. If spirits are teaching or teachers claiming divine authority, what does it mean to test them? Well, put it this way, it would be similar to the kind of investigation that you would automatically do before you buy a car, before you buy a house, before you just let any bozo date or marry your daughter. I mean, you check the history. You ask questions, do you not? You dig beneath the surfaces, you call references, you consult specialists, you are not fooled by mere appearances, you you will not accept vague, ambiguous answers to your questions. You kick the tires and you check the crawl space for, for termites, you look at the prospective boyfriend's internet history and you find out who and what he really is. That's exactly what John is describing. And so the urgent hour of the question is, church, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Are you theologically and spiritually prepared to defend the faith and test the spirits? Because we talk a lot about filters, right? When you say a person has no filter, it means what? It means they say stupid things without considering the consequences. True, that guy has no filter, right? 
What about a filter for what goes on the inside? Do you have a filter? A tight theological filter that does not entertain ideas foreign to the Bible. Paul says in Ephesians 4.14 that we should no longer be children. Tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. By the trickery of men. With craftiness and deceitful scheming. My question is, do you have a filter? A tight theological filter that isn't driven by every wind of doctrine and trickery of men. And every conspiracy theory about Bill Gates. The question is, what step have you put in place? Personal Bible habits, study routines, anything, anything that will help you be prepared when the false prophets come. Because guess what? It's too late. They've already come. And chances are you've already been exposed. The real question is, is your soul saturated with Holy Scripture through meditation on the text? Because you realize, you you see the chain reaction Meditation leads to saturation, which leads to the detection of error, which in turn leads to the protection of your soul and to the church. Which leads to the final C, the criteria. The criteria, because you know that you should test the spirits. You know why you should test the spirits, but now John tells us how to test the spirits in verses 2 and 3. Look what he says. Here's here's how. Here's how you determine if something is from God or if it is from something else. By this you know the Spirit of God. Okay, I want to know. Every spirit which confesses Jesus Christ having come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard is coming and too late. It's already here. So you see it, don't you? There are but two sources from which a giving teacher or teaching may arise. There's the Spirit of God, verse 2. There's the Spirit of the Antichrist, verse 3. There's no third option. There's no all of the above. It's either one or the other. Every book, sermon, blog, seminar, preacher, teacher, YouTuber claiming to speak from God is either from the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Antichrist. The question is, what is the criteria? How do you determine the difference between the two? What does John say? Every spirit which confesses Jesus Christ having come in the flesh is from God. That's profound. That's so profound, isn't it? You can tell that if what you're hearing is from the Spirit of God, if Christ is at the center of the message. That's the criteria. If all that Christ is, and all that Christ accomplished is the center of that book or sermon, then that book or sermon has as its ultimate source the Spirit of God Himself. And yet the question is, okay, what must they affirm about the Lord Jesus Christ? What must they believe about Him? Because the Quran, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Catholics, Hebrew roots, all claim to have the corner on Christ. All the mainline liberal denominations, most of whom have denied the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture, Episcopalians, Methodists, some branches of Lutherans, some branches of Presbyterians, 
The question is, what must they affirm about Christ to be from the Spirit of God? That's the question. And John tells us. He says, they must affirm that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And you're, maybe you're thinking, that's it? <laughs> they got to believe that he was a human? That, that he came to earth as a real historical human being? Well, yes that, but there's more there than meets the eye, isn't there? You see, when John speaks, get this now, when John speaks about Christ having come in the flesh, you understand that right there is code for the incarnation. When God became a man. When eternal deity and historical humanity joined in one person. Because get this, if you get the incarnation right, you get everything else right. Seriously. If you are willing to affirm that Jesus Christ is the eternal God who became physical man, who lived, never sinned, murdered on a cross, rose triumphant from the tomb, and rules the universe, then everything else you believe is going to fall into place. The, the incarnation is the gravitational center that holds everything we believe together. It really is. Creation. The fall of man, the trinity, forgiveness, heaven, hell, salvation, resurrection, and the second coming. Those are ropes wrapped around the tent peg of the incarnation and hammered into the ground. Which means you lose the incarnation. You lose everything. So if you want to find out if a teaching or teacher is from the Spirit of God or not, you simply inquire as to what they believe about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Listen to how one recent book on the incarnation put it. The book's called The Incarnation of God. The quote's in your notes, if you have the notes. And it's not an easy read, but it is one of the most profound, mind-blowing books I have ever read in my entire life. Listen to what they say about the incarnation. The Word became flesh, in this simple but sublime enunciation, we have the whole gospel comprehended in a word. The incarnation is the key that unlocks the sense of all of God's revelations. It is the key that unlocks the sense of all of God's works. It is the final secret that makes the entire drama of redemption come together in one staggering, coherent whole. It is that which brings to light the true meaning of the universe. The incarnation forms thus the great central fact of the world. And they're exactly right. Because they got it from John. Because without, without the incarnation, you understand, without the God-man, we don't fully know what God is like. Without the God-man, there is no substitute who dies in our place. Without the God-man, there is no atonement. There is no salvation. There's no redemption. Without the God-man, there's no mediator between God and men. Without Jesus Christ having come in the flesh, the entire cosmic drama of redemption comes unraveled. And there is no hope for the human race and every soul goes to hell forever. 
If someone is willing to put that kind of weight on the incarnation, then you know, you know that what you're dealing with is a teaching or teacher empowered by the Spirit. That's how you test the spirits. You simply find out what they believe about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Because if they don't affirm that, if they don't affirm that Christ is God who became a man and that in him alone is found the treasure of salvation, what does John say about them? And his usual all business, no frills or gimmicks way of writing, look what he says in verse 3. Every spirit which confesses Jesus Christ having come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard is coming, and it is already in the world. So here what he says there, not only does the person who denies the doctrine of Christ not have the spirit of God, John doubles down and says they do have the spirit of the Antichrist. (laughs) Meaning what? Meaning, the very same diabolical power that the Antichrist will use to deceive the nations when he comes is the very same power that lurks in those who deny the gospel today. Let me give you a sample of what the spirit of the Antichrist sounds like. Because it doesn't sound like what you would expect. I'm going to give you a transcript of a conversation between Joel Osteen and Larry King. Joel Osteen is the biggest church in America down in Houston. Larry King is hardly a Christian, doesn't believe Christianity at all, and yet he knows exactly what Christianity teaches. King asks, you've always believed in Christianity, Osteen. I've always believed. I grew up, you know, my parents were good Christian people. They showed us love in the home, and I just grew up believing. King, but don't you think that if people don't believe as you believe, They're somehow condemned. Osteen. You know, I don't know. I know there's condemnation, but I don't feel that's my place. King. What if you're Jewish or Muslim and you don't accept Christ at all? Osteen. You know, I'm very careful about saying who would or wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. King. If you believe that you have to believe in Christ, they're wrong, aren't they? Osteen. Well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. But I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about the religion, but I know they love God, and I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I don't know, he says. So let me me get this straight. You're telling me there's a man who claims the power and blessing of God on his ministry a man who claims to preach the word. Here's a man who claims to speak for God, a man who claims to represent Jesus Christ, who pastors a church of, yes, 52,000 people, and you're telling me he doesn't know if the sovereign king of the universe demands that all nations bow down to him in allegiance alone? As if there were other options on the table. And that there are ways of obtaining salvation outside of a bloody cross and faith alone in Christ as the King. 50,000 people who show up to hear that every Sunday is not a sign of God's blessing. But of the blinding power of the evil one 
which the Antichrist will use to deceive the nations when he comes. Test the spirits, John says. Test them. Test them. Find out what they say. Read the fine print. Read the ingredients. Do they get the incarnation right? Because you can totally tell, although we're not called to be contentious and nasty about the faith, we are called to contend for the faith. And the health of this church depends on your ability to do so. That's the first test. The first test, to discern the difference between truth and deception. Test number two. Test number two, to discern the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Number two, the criterion of crowd appeal. The criterion of crowd appeal. In other words, one of the ways to tell if what you're hearing is from the Spirit of God or from the Spirit of the Antichrist is not only to test the teaching of the teachers themselves, but get this, to evaluate who it is who listens to the teachers. Kind of interesting. In other words, what kind of crowd do they draw? Who finds them interesting? Who finds them appealing? Who reads their books and retweets their tweets? Who listens to their sermons and podcasts? Here's an example of what I mean. Back in 2013, there was an influential pastor out of Michigan named Rob Bell. And he had gained a pretty wide following through his preaching and videos and blogs and books. And people found his raw, honest approach to Christianity, his willingness to ask the really hard, forbidden questions, his willingness to confront the stale religiosity in the church. Some people found that really refreshing. And although he said, honestly, really edgy things, people were divided on whether or not Rob Bell was a good thing. I mean, his early books and his preaching were filled with these vague, troubling statements that were catchy and you know, smarty pants and insightful seeming on the surface, but not necessarily outright heretical. But everything changed when he wrote a book called Love Wins. Love Wins, in which he denied the reality of hell, rejected the atonement, basically everything else, while still claiming to represent authentic Christianity. In fact, he went to war against traditional Christianity. And guess who glommed onto this thing like manna falling down from heaven? The world did through their spiritual mentor, Oprah. She had him on the show. Gave him a platform. She loved his book. She loved his book. She, Oprah loved his book. And his book became this massive bestseller. He did a speaking tour, got his own show. The world fell in love with Rob Bell. And what that was was the seal, the deal, confirmation that this man, that this man was not from God. That's exactly what John's talking about. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them or overcome them because greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. For this reason, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. The one who knows God listens to us. Who is not from God does not listen to us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There they are, the two crowds. Those from God, those from the world. One crowd listens to truth. One crowd loves lies and deception. Now, don't you notice first what John does in verse 4? Did, did you catch what he did there? 
In verses 1 through 3, he just got done saying that the demonic power of the Antichrist is all over the planet with false prophets and teachers trying to infiltrate the church and unravel your faith and deceive you. And that sounds pretty creepy, and it is pretty creepy. And yet what it could do is give the impression that it's just open season for believers, that they are without arms against the dark arts of the deceptions of the evil one. Well, we're overmatched. There's too much for us. Let's retreat. Let's go hide. Let's go build a commune in the desert. Let's create this safe little bubble to hide ourselves from the big, bad, demonic world. Let's just escape. And yet, and yet, in response to what we could be tempted to say, John injects profound theological stability in verse 4. Look what he says. You. As opposed to the false teachers, you are from God, little children. And you have conquered them. Because greater is the one in you than the one who is in the world. Did you hear what he said? You are from God. That's unusual, isn't it? That's an unusual way to describe what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? I'm from God. That's what he's saying. Not only are you saved by God, but you are so saved by God that you can literally be described as being from God himself. You are saved by God, rescued by God, chosen by God, adopted by God. What this is is a statement of profound security in your salvation. And yet, and yet, what is the result of being so saved by God? What is the practical application of being from God himself? Look what he says. You're from God, little children, and you have conquered them. You've conquered them. You've won. You've you've overpowered them. You've won. It's over. You've defeated them. You've vanquished them. You've overcome them. Who is the them? The them is the false teachers who have gone out into the world. And John says, you've conquered them. They're defeated. It's over. Game, set, match, knockout. You You have overcome them. Meaning what? What does that mean? You have overcome them. He means... Their diabolical plans to unravel your faith. Their sinister plans to destroy you and deceive you will never prevail. That's what he's saying. They'll never prevail. Not if you're from God, they won't. I mean, they could persecute you imprison you, they can kill you, but if you truly have salvation, it is a complete waste of their time to deceive you. It's never going to happen to you or your kids if you belong to God, if you belong to God through Christ. That, that, that's never going to happen to you. It won't happen. Their plans will fail against you. Now, qualification. That doesn't mean you, have to, you don't have to read the Bible. It doesn't mean you don't have to study to labor to know what God says doesn't mean you don't have to test the spirits and defend the faith because you absolutely should. We should, be, we should have our swords sharp and ready, absolutely. You should be a person of increasing theological depth and precision. It just means that if you're truly saved, God has included in your salvation that which you need to keep you from being deceived. 
But what? What has God included in your salvation to keep you from being deceived? Having your faith unraveled by false teaching, what has God supplied? And the answer is profound. Look at verse 4. You are from God. And you have overcome them. Here it is. One of the most well-known, often quoted verses from 1 John. Because greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. There it is. Do you see it? The gift that God has given to guard you from deception is the gift of God himself. Who was the last person named? It was God. And he says, God is in you. God is in you. God is in you. He's not in some faraway galaxy sending over beams of his power from light years away. He is in you. He is in you through our union with Christ. Our lives are inseparably intertwined with the very life of God so that he lives his own life in and through you. And he is greater, infinitely greater than the one who is in the world, which is the spirit of the Antichrist who is already in the world. And behind that, the evil one himself. If you're in Christ, you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Again, we've got to qualify. That doesn't mean you can turn your brains off. It doesn't mean you don't have to think. No, you still have to know the scriptures. You are still responsible to test the spirits and contend for the faith. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You know we are right now in the middle of a full-scale war waged for the control of your minds. And although you will not be a casualty of war, you still must be prepared to fight in the war. And how you do that, get this now, how you do that is not by merely reading the Bible, but by reading the Bible the way the Bible wants you to read the Bible. That's how. Which is slow and steady, crock-pot contemplation of what God says in the sacred text. You, you, can't, you can't read the Bible like you do a text message. Nor is it adequate to read it only once or twice a week. You've got to dive for pearls. You've got to dig for gold. You've got to drill for oil in the sacred text, and you have got to do it every single day. Not because it checks the box, not because it makes God love you more, but because if you haven't noticed, your soul is not a self-replenishing fountain, but a leaky bucket of need. What I'm saying is, the way to test the spirits and defend the faith and not be duped by deception is not to be some heresy hunter who's always looking for a fight to pick, but rather to fight for your highest joy in the truths that God has revealed. Because the doctrines most worth fighting for are the ones most worth rejoicing in. So go to the text. 
be hungry, be needy, be desperate, be dependent, read slow, read slower, read it again and again and again with a pen in your hand and God will meet you through his word. And when your soul is delighted with what God has revealed, then you will be most prepared to defend the faith. Which gets John back to his main point. How to tell, how to tell if a teacher is legitimate or counterfeit is through the criterion of crowd appeal. Because again, sometimes it's not super easy to tell. Rob Bell had a lot of people fooled. Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes, Mark Driscoll, Todd White, Jen Hatmaker, now probably Beth Moore. They quote the Bible. They seem legitimate. And yet the crowd they attract tips their hand and reveals who they really are. Look at verse 5. You are from God, little children. They are from the world. For this reason, they speak from the world. Notice, here it is. And the world listens to them. I mean, do you feel the head-on collision here? Four times in this text, John said, used the phrase, from God. The spirit from God. The truth from God. You are from God. And here he says, they are from the world. And that's a problem. That's a really, really big problem. Because to be from the world in John's theology is the worst possible predicament that you could possibly have. It's a graphic way to describe being spiritually blinded by the evil one. To be captive to the unseen sinister power at work behind the scenes. It's to be spiritually dead, slave to sin, a puppet of the prince of darkness. And John says, verse 5, the false prophets, they speak from the world, meaning they sing the tune that everybody wants to hear. If it's self-esteem that sells, that they'll preach. If it's health, wealth, prosperity, you got it. If it's signs and wonders, visions and dreams, consider it done. If it's love wins, critical race theory, social justice, if that's the tune that makes the world dance, then by golly, that's the tune the false prophets are going to play. And what does John say? What happens when they speak from the world? What happens when they speak from the world? Hakasmas, auton, akue, the world listens to them. You understand, the prophets of the world, they package their teaching in a way that appeals to the already existing flames of lust that burn in the human soul. That's why it sells so well. All the hallmarks of the biblical prophets and apostles will simply not be there. They, just, they, they won't be there in their teaching. No warnings to the rebellious. No calls to repentance. No bloody messiahs. No crucified saviors, no call to come and die, no grace alone, no faith alone, no scripture alone, no Christ alone, definitely not glory to God alone. Rather, what you're going to hear from the false prophets, from the imposters, is a tepid gospel of therapeutic self-esteem, man-centered affirmation that portrays a little God 
whose greatest mission in life is to help you love you as much as he loves you and the world loves it. They eat it up. The point is, the synagogue of Satan can be spotted by the crowd who fills the seats. What I'm trying to say is be very, very wary, little church, of broad appeal, of wide acceptance and eager embrace of books like the heaven is for real, like the boy who came back from heaven, teaching and teachers that claim to represent God and yet embraced by large and diverse audiences because you remember back in the day it was the false prophets who drew the biggest crowds. I think of the way food companies market their food to try to get you to buy it by appealing to our sense of health. Have you noticed this? 98% fat-free this, sugar-free that, diet this, low sodium that. The funny thing about those labels is that it's only true from a certain point of view, right? What they have to put into the food to be able to say that is actually worse than just leaving the fat and sugar in. The point is you've got to be discerning. And you've got to be borderline skeptical. Now, I don't mean that we must be sour, cynical, nitpicky little grouches who call people heretics for the slightest reason. Absolutely not. That has no place in the church. It has no place in this church. But we also can't be so naive to just assume that just because it claims to be from the truth that it actually is the truth. Which leads us finally to the pinnacle of John's argument, which is how to tell if someone is actually from God, if they, have, if they are a believer, if they have the Spirit of God or not. And get this, it all comes down to if they have a taste for truth. Look at verse 6, then we're done. You are from God, verse 4. They are from the world, verse 5. We are from God. The one who knows God listens to us. Who is not from God does not listen to us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now I know how that sounded. Just the, the height of arrogance, right? The height of narcissism. If you're really from God, you'll listen to us. If you're really from God, you come to our church. It's not what he's saying. It's not what he's after. When he says we, he not only means he and the other apostles. He means you and me and anyone else who believes what they preached because they did have the corner on the truth. That's why he says the one who knows God listens to us and those who don't know God, they don't listen. Because I'll just tell you, one of the things I have witnessed in my years as a pastor, I'm not super old, but I've been a pastor for a while I have enough evidence of this. One of the things I have witnessed in my years as a pastor, get this, is that the number one way to tell authentic believers from make-believers is how they respond to the word proclaimed. Regeneration floats to the top. It floats to the top. True believers respond to the preaching of the word. Make-believers get offended. And they leave and complain. The one who knows God and loves God and belongs to God listens to the voice of God, not out there somewhere, but in the word of God. They like what they hear. It, it resonates with their souls. Their spiritual taste buds have been 
acclimated to the feast of Holy Scripture. There is within them a highly imperfect but ever-increasing appetite and hunger for the living God through what He has revealed and spoken in the sacred text. The question is, do you see any of that in your life? Are your spiritual taste buds acclimated to the feast of Holy Scripture and what God has spoken and revealed? Do you see that to read Scripture is to hear God speak? That you owe to Scripture the same reverence that you owe to God because it proceeds forth from Him and there is nothing of man in it. Can you witness the imperfect but ever-increasing appetite for the living God through what he has revealed and spoken in the sacred text? Because that's how you tell the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The question is, what spirit do you possess? Do you have the spirit of truth? Or do you have the spirit of error? Are you from God? Or are you still chained and enslaved to the world? Because right now, at this very second, the Lord Jesus Christ is present in His Word. He's present in and through His Word. And right this moment, the great High King is offering right now the treasure of eternal salvation paid for in full by His sin-bearing death to anyone who yields to Him in repentance and faith. And so if you have not yet done so, the question is, will you yield to the King in repentance and faith? Oh Lord, we understand that life is war. That whether we realize it or recognize it or admit it or not, Lord, that we are in the trenches. That there is all around us, Lord, danger, threats, things that seek to do us harm. And yet, Lord, we are grateful, we are grateful that we don't have to walk around terrified, panicking, wondering if some demon is behind every bush, Lord. Because we know that if we hang on to you through your word, that that is protection enough. That is shield of not enough, Lord. Help us to use the shield of faith in your promises. Help us to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Help us to be helmeted with the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And help us, O oh Lord, to stay close to the battalion of the local church, to stay close, to stay connected, to not drift, to not think that we could be lone assassins on our own. There is no such thing, O oh Lord. Those people die. Lord, I pray that you would protect this little church, protect these people. I pray that they would be great meditators on your word. Lord, that all of us, that all of us would own one another's spiritual health and growth. I need them, O oh Lord, and, and they need me, and we need one another. We are a great synergy of souls, O oh Lord. This is how your body works. Help us, O oh Lord, help us to grow deep and grow strong so that this church can be used by you to bring great 
glory to your son and to be used by you as an instrument to cause great ripple effects into eternity always and only for the matchless and majestic name of your son in whose name we pray.